Movement Specialist, welcome back to another podcast series brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. All right, therapists, are you ready? Get on your mark, set, objective. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. All right, therapists, you just got off running during your evaluation. This is the second part series of our four-part overall in SOAP notes. So we, the last episode, we covered subjective, and now today we are going over objective. And wh- where do you exactly start with, with your objective? What are you exactly looking for? What are you exactly doing? What is your goal? That's kind of what we're going to be covering today. And so, gentlemen, and with your combined almost 20 years of experience and lady with with an additional eight to that, what where do you guys start with your objective evaluation? I mean, I think this is something that's definitely evolved over time. Um, <clears throat> for me, I, going through residency, I constantly got asked the question, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? What they were trying to determine was, well, is that really going to give me the most information that's applicable to that patient? Or was I just doing it because that's what I was taught in school? As I've continued now, you know, going through some additional continued education courses, spending time with some brilliant minds, um, now I'm really looking at is when I'm done with my objective exam is where am I going to start with the patient for their home exercise program and for their treatment on their next session? And a lot of times I can't get that just by doing range of motion, strength, special test. Not to say that sometimes those aren't indicated and necessary for a lot of different reasons, but oftentimes if that's all that I do, I'm not starting my patient at a high enough high enough level for them on their first day of treatment, i.e. they're a tennis player and I don't look at anything that looks or smells like tennis and I start them with shoulder isometrics. Well, if I go back to their subjective exam and they tell me that they play tennis three times a week, most likely shoulder isometrics is not going to be at a high enough level for them to meet their needs. So that's kind of what my end goal is when I do an objective exam is, do I test them at a level to truly help me identify what level they are at from a functional and physical standpoint? Yeah, I would say my answer to that is, can I come out of the objective and, and say, is, can I come up with a reason or multiple reasons why this person might have difficulty with X, whatever they told me was, was their difficulty or their goal. Did I look at it? Did I actually break it down? Can I make it make sense to them in a way that A, they buy into therapy and B, it gives me my step one, step two, step three on where I want to maybe go with them as I start treating them. So, I mean, Jenna, Dan, this seems like what you guys are telling me is a lot different than what, we were kind of taught in school, you know, whenever I was taught to go through, you know, sub, uh, an objective portion of exam, it seems like you first do your range of motion, whether it's passive or active, and you take them through the cardinal planes of motion and you clear the joint above and below. Are you guys saying you really do that? I mean, wh- where where do you start? I mean, I, I like how you're saying that you have this big spectrum, um, but but what what's your what's your recipe, dare I say? I honestly very rarely do range of motion or manual muscle testing unless I feel like I need to in an evaluation. 
Um, I recently did an evaluation with a student where I let her kind of do what she wanted to do objectively. And then I came in and I did what I wanted to do objectively. And at the end of the eval, we kind of had two different objectives. And I said, okay, so if I wrote a question down and I write a question down, I want you to give me the answer to your question. Give me seven to 10 reasons why this gentleman has pain with his golf swing. And she was like, well, and she looked through her range of motion. She looked through her strength. I'm like, no, that's, that's a what, that's what you found. Why would it be painful with his golf swing? And she kind of looked at me and I said, well, if you think about what we did, what I did whenever I went through objective and you followed me through that, could you give me that answer now? So, oh yeah, he had limited hip rotation and he couldn't, he had limited thoracic rotation and he was weak, weak into this direction and coming out on the other end and having that why is so much more valuable for me because it gives me a place to start and it gets that patient again to buy into, oh my gosh, they're actually looking at me as an individual and not just looking at these things that are supposed to be put on this template. I think for me personally, uh, it's funny. My first thing I do is I actually pretty much always do some active range of motion of some sort, but I have a different purpose behind it than what's my goniometric measurement or what is it. I, I am actually interested in the patient's willingness to move and how does that differ, if at all, from when they walked back. I'm always paying attention as soon as I get up and I get them from the front, how they're moving, what they're doing, what compensatory patterns, if I could speak they're going through, et cetera, then I'm always just interested real quick once we start the formalized evaluation as far as they're concerned, does anything change? So I want to keep something very simple and see where we're at. I am then assuming nothing looks weird, going to get into a very large global movement pattern for whatever it is that I'm looking for. And what I'm trying to do is hypothesize between what information I've heard subjectively, especially where their, you know, where their symptoms lie, what might be the pain generators, and then looking for dysfunctional movements on a gross scale. I want to get an idea. What do I think is going to be the dysfunctional structures? What do I think I'm going to feel with my hands when it comes to muscle mobility, extensibility, strength, joint mobility, fascia mobility, whatever it is that you're assessing? So I'm kind of saying, let's start global. Let's see what I think is going to happen. Then I'm going to put them because I'm a very manual therapist and I'm going to put them on the table. It might be sitting, might be in gravity dependent position, might be supine, might be prone, sideline, whatever it is. But I want to see if my hands correlate or correspond with what I think I'm going to feel. So I, you know, for example, see them doing hip extension. I don't like how the hip is extending. And I think, well, let's looking at this. I think that they're going to have poor, you know, Cardiometal capsule mobility of the hip, I think I'm going to have poor adductor mobility, whatever it is I find, then do my hands agree with that? And then does that allow me to take the next step for where I want to take this patient again to decide what their first treatment is going to be, which probably takes into account a little bit also what Dan says too, have I challenged them appropriately? So if I've got my global, I have my hand agreement, then I want to say, where is the right starting point? Because all too often people stop, right? at the point I was just talking about, and then start doing exercises. And I would question how you have any idea what's the appropriate challenge for this person. Otherwise, you're really just continuing your, your evaluation the first day, which is fine. That might be what you need to do. But I want to have a better idea, again, what Dan said. What is their true fatigue point? What is their true challenge point? How are they actually functioning when you get into their activity? And then that gives me a better idea of what can I start appropriately uh, when it comes to treatment and intervention for this individual. Yeah, and I would say for me... <clears throat> It, it, it's funny, as, as I think about what I do for an eval, I always start global on a lower extremity eval, and I always start local on an upper extremity upper. eval. And, and I don't know if that's consistent across all of us, but that's, like, thinking about it, that's how I always do it. 
um, like, you know, I had a shoulder initial eval last week and I did shoulder active range of motion first. And then I did cervical clearing and I did thoracic spine clearing. And then at that point, the patient was too irritable for me to take him into any sort of combined motion where I get lower extremity involved. Um, but you know, that was a clinical judgment, but versus when I do lower extremity, I always start with gait always. And unless they're non-weight bearing, right. But uh, at that point, even if they're non-weight bearing, I'm probably going to see how they walk with their assistive device Mm -hmm. on their non-affected limb. Right. Um, but, but I, I want to kind of blend something that Paul alluded to about a, a activity tolerance and, and kind of make a blend from our previous podcast on, on subjective and then what it looks like objectively. And, and Paul was evaluating a young runner. And Paul kind of said, well, you're a runner. Well, did, has anybody watched you run recently? And the patient and the mother were kind of like, well, my coach – Paul's like, okay, well, does your coach give you any feedback? Well, no. And so Paul goes, let's go get on the treadmill so I can watch you run. And the mom was almost dumbfounded because she was like, oh my gosh, somebody actually wants to watch my kid run and give me information. I think that's something that we don't do very a very good job of when I go observe in other clinics, uh, interact with our prof- other professionals is, is to actually watch the patient do the activity right? Like they say that they I have agree. difficulty running. How many times do we put them on the treadmill and watch them run? They have difficulty throwing or swinging or doing stairs. I mean, you know, Andrew, you kind of alluded to if they're a golfer, I want to take them through something that smells or looks like golf. But how often does the majority of a profession really do that? And how grave of a disservice are we doing those patients that are seeking that information and they they don't get that. Yeah, I feel like really, and it puts, you know. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, what you just said there, Dan, was absolutely profound. I mean, because I, th- I think that you hit the nail right on the head, how our profession does not know how to actually truly maybe listen to the patient, as we were talking about subjective, to really have the boldness and, and challenge their body with that with that objective portion. I've always viewed <clears throat> the subjective portion as, as your connection with that patient's mind understand what, what they want, understand what their values are, understand what their goals are. And then the objective part is where then you're trying to understand their body. Have the body give clues on what it is telling you about how it moves in our, the three-dimensional world we live in. And it's very funny that how when people actually tell us they have an issue with a sport, with an activity, how oftentimes our PT school um, learning completely hamstrings us to, to be relegated to doing um, just active and passive range of motion where we don't even see the forest from the trees, where we don't even get to help them out. So, I mean, I think that's absolutely profound in, in, in what you said, but it, it also speaks into an intensity of Why don't you think some of uh, other PTs, whether they're first year grads or 10 or been out practicing for 10 years, why don't they select um, that activity? If they have pain with walking, why is not, why isn't, walking the first thing that we're taking a look at is it a fear factor is it a knowledge factor what do you think the barrier is they don't know how because (laughs) i can tell you i i don't know how and that was what was going to be one of my comments earlier is i think i start local with everything even if somebody tells me i have pain with walking yes am i going to look at walking absolutely if i look at walking as the very first thing in my eval i can't see hardly anything unless it's absolutely obvious if i break it down and i have them 
Can you swing your arm side to side and I can look for if you have calcaneal eversion, inversion happening? Yes, it happens. Does it happen in stride stance? Yes, it still happens. Can you stand in single leg and point these different directions and control it? Yes, I can or no, I can't. I can put those things together. Okay, do you have the hip stability? Do you have the mobility happening down the chain? How is everything looking? And if I can see anything big popping up there, I can take it and then look at gait and say, okay, these are the big things that I saw when things were easier and it was more controlled environment. Now I'm going to take them and I'm going to actually have them walk and I'm going to see more things at that point. My brain does better when I break it down first and then look at the whole thing. Because when I'm talking to you guys, it seems like you guys really look at the global, at, at, to the best of your ability, look at global first. Look at that function first. And then you try to dial back rather than start with local, piled upon local, and try to get the bigger picture of the story. Am I hearing that correctly? I don't know. I think it depends on how you say local and global. <laughs> I, I, what I described just now, I would say was lo- would be local to global. I think but that would be for a specific gate. I think the important thing is the knowledge. I, I think that that's the lacking piece that is not there for individuals. And I think that either way, you have to decide what works best in your brain. Like Jen said, she works best in her brain looking at things locally and then moving globally. Again, depending on how you want to define it. I like to go exactly what you said, Andrew. I'm almost always a kind of global, then really pare it down to very specific uh, joint mobility and whatever at a very local level. Dan kind of apparently is confused and just depends on the diagnosis and <laughs> how the different individual presents. But the important part is that all of us can tell you what we need to see, what we're looking at from a movement standpoint. And again, we talk about being movement specialists. I think the barrier is you're taught in school, maybe your first couple of classes, certain movements, but you don't know how to put everything yet together globally. You don't know how things actually all function. So you're stuck with, well, I know that they have weak hip abductors. I know that they have weak hip extenders. I know that their hamstring length is not where it should be. And I know that the hip interrotation isn't good. So let's treat those things and see what happens, which for some people actually is perfectly sufficient. Um, but I, I think that you have to then take time when you're out of school to start learning, whether it's through con ed courses or mentorship or wherever you find it, how the body really moves together, how it really truly functions. And then you'll be capable of looking at things at a deeper level. But coming out of school, we are just not prepared to do that to any capacity. Well, you know, and I think I 100% agree with that, that, that I think it's a fear and it's a knowledge thing. Um, you know, Paul just alluded to the knowledge thing. I think the fear component is, well, if I don't know what is required for this patient to do set activity, let's call it tennis, they're not going to want to come back to me because I don't know the game of tennis. Well, guess what? If all of a sudden you have five people that play tennis that have come into your clinic over five months and you don't know much about tennis, guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be watching tennis on TV, even if I think it's unbelievably boring, which I don't, but I'm going to be watching YouTube videos. I'm going to be trying to figure out what is required in tennis that is leading people to come into my clinic that are unable to play tennis for whatever reason, due to mainly due to injury, or that they want to play tennis better. And it comes down to, can you understand what they need to do in, in the certain levels that are commonly are common areas to, to break down. Is it the hips? Is it the thoracic spine? Is it the shoulder? Is it the elbow? Is it the wrist? Is it the hand? Is it their grip size? Is it things like that, that if you don't watch them complete the activity, you're not going to uncover the whole picture. But if they don't know what that activity should look like, they're going to be confused. 
And I'm just hearing movement specialist again. You're not talking about understanding the thought process behind a sport, not understanding uh, how a coach would want you to play. You're understanding does a person have the capabilities of moving through the entire chain the way that their body needs to move based on the demand of the sport is what I'm hearing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I venture to say nearly 100% of the people that are listening to this podcast right now know a thing or two about how the body's put together. And I'd also venture to say that 100% of the people listening to this podcast also don't know everything about how the body moves in all aspects of function. Agreed. You know, I mean, and so to a certain extent, it does take a little bit of that humility with yourself, probably number first, and then with the patient, number two, to be brave enough to take that step and say, hey, I might not know everything about this, but I do know a thing or two about the body. And but with you teaching me and me analyzing you, maybe we can figure out what is really going on and how to get you better. I mean, just last week, I had a patient that she participated in aerial arts is what she called it. These are the people that hang from long silk strands up suspended in the air. And she had an injury with that. And that's what she wanted to get back to. I had never in my life treated anyone that was in aerial arts. And, and so she had to show me a couple of pictures and videos about what she did and, and how she got injured. But that was immensely helpful to me. And that really helped guide actually the physical aspect of my evaluation. Cause I really soon realized with her picture that she was one of the most, most flexible individuals ever that I knew if I had to challenge her in the way that was appropriate, I was going to have to basically load her up, lock her down her hips and really see how her spine moves. I saw her for her back to really get an appreciation of what was going on. And with that, and I was humbled and I say, I don't really know as much about your sport, but then after I'm getting her in these positions and I said, does this feel like it, like is relevant to what you go through in, in your sport? And whenever she gave me that confirmatory, yeah, it kind of feels like this. Then I was able, then I was able to really get her in her, what the, grants to call her transformational zone to see if her body was responding properly. And so I feel like where we can help, if, it, if there's that fear factor, I want to tell the podcast listeners out there that you know a thing or two about the human body. If you're a licensed physical therapist, you've gone through you know, four years of school. You've gone through lots of rotations. You might even have a couple of years of clinical experience underneath your belt. But you know things, and you have a lot to offer that patient, even if you don't understand all aspects of their activity or sport. And I think just to put it in perspective, okay. because what you touch on is truly important, even if you do know a lot about a sport, you don't know exactly how that person's mechanics function. For example, Dan was talking about tennis. I think I know tennis well. I played at tennis for many, many years at a high level. I have coached tennis. I have approvals. I have certifications. I have all these things to do. You could come through and tell me you use a Western grip, open sense. You could tell me everything you want to tell me about the sport. That doesn't guarantee I can replicate your swing. I need to know how you move and you might have little deviations, little changes, little nuances, whether it's compensatory because your body can't do it or it's just what you have done and over time, whether a coach taught you or why, whatever it presents for. So it, like Andrew said, it is a great value to have an individual bring a video in of themselves, show you if pain isn't going to restrict them from doing it, what they look like. Because even if you know something to the in this degree, it doesn't mean you know how that specific person is going to function. So you can always use that to your advantage if you don't know and say, hey, 
you know, from what I've seen before, other than aerial gymnastics, whatever you've done, because I'm not even going to pretend I know what's going on with that. But hey, I know I've seen a lot of different mechanics for this. How do you perform? What do you do so I can be most specific to you and really get you where you need to be? Again, just talking back into that buy-in and that other part that we've discussed in the subjective component that is necessary through the entire evaluation. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Another thing that, that I think then you can do at that point is – you know, and I, I don't want to say I'm anti-goniometer, I'm anti-manual muscle test, I'm anti-special test because I'm not. Those have their places and, you know, there are certain regulations and insurance, things like that, that, you know, you have to, you have to quote unquote play the game. But I also want to know in that set activity is, is it a range of motion restriction? Is it a motor control issue? Is it neuromuscular education issue? Is it a proprioceptive input issue or is it pain limiting? Because I, I think all too often, you, you know, I mean, we talk about, man, I really wish I knew what this person could do before they tore their ACL. And how often is that available? It depends on the level of individual you're working with, right? It might be readily available if you're working in a professional athlete or somebody who has, who has collegiate aspirations. But if they're not and you don't know what they look like pre-injury level, that makes it really hard to get them back to a certain point. But that doesn't discredit the ability to put your hands on somebody while they're doing that movement and truly feel what's going on. Then passively take them through that movement and see, oh, wait, you do have the motion, but you aren't using all that motion. I wonder why. The other thing that you know, I want to kind of touch on is what Andrew said about the humility standpoint is I don't know how many times I'm asking colleagues for help and be like, can you help me watch this person move? Cause there's just something funky and I don't know what it is. Or can you come feel this end feel? Cause it doesn't feel right to me, but I don't really know what it is. I think that's the joy of our profession, but it, on sometimes it's the demise because we don't want to take the risk to ask somebody else for help because we don't want to look like we don't know anything. And, and I think if, if I could reach out to our podcast listeners in that regard is to say, you know what? Don't be afraid to ask for help in the objective exam or ask for help of interpreting the objective information of saying, you know what? Why did it change when I put their left foot forward and I had them go through arm swing? Or why did it change when I put them in a gravity dependent or independent position. I don't understand why it changed. Help me understand that. I mean, just to right. back just to back up what Dan was saying, I literally just did that this morning with Dan. Had a patient on table. I can typically reproduce left-sided pain in their face with a right-side upper trap compression. Uh, individual has a lot of interesting challenges. The uh, injury was a vascular injury after manipulation. Um, but it's just one of those where we talked about, you know, she has trigeminal distribution. What are the different structures? What could we be looking at? Go through. And the patient was very appreciative that we were sitting here discussing what could we look at? What are some outside the box things to think about? What might have I missed? What are we going through? It's greatly appreciated. And it's something that patients were like, wow, they're really trying to do everything they can to get to the bottom of what is happening. So yeah, I agree with that. Do not ever be afraid to ask for that help. As long as you're not saying, I don't know what's wrong with you. Come help me. <laughs> You're right, going to be fine. Right. Uh, you have to do it intelligently and professionally. But trust me, if you've gone through an eval and you start discussing the patient things, but you want to get a little extra opinion on saying something or, you know, an extra set of eyes, extra brain, it only helps us, never hurts. Patients appreciate that. Andrew, I have a question I for you. I completely agree. Um, 
now that you're, you know, not with spooning in a different environment, how often are you doing your objective component of your evaluation in an open space where other members of your team can view what you're doing? Oh, I mean, I do 100% of my evaluation in open space. I mean, if anything, that is the one equipment requirement I have in any clinic is just space. I love to figure out how a person moves in their natural environment. For the majority of my patients, that is standing on land with gravity affecting the way their body moves. Um, and so in doing that and boldly doing my flavor of physical therapy, which I get patients in a relevant position to what they want to return to, it, it makes a lot of sense. I love it when a patient says, you know, I, I don't really get too many questions of why are you doing this? It's, they more say, oh, and this makes sense why you're looking at this. They're almost on the ride with me. And then I think from my colleague perspective, whenever they see what I'm doing, you know, at, at first glance, they might think, okay, this is a little bit interesting. I've never seen someone do it this way before. But after they hear me, as we're going through it, as they're hearing me talk, they almost say, okay, this kind of makes sense. I want to know more about it. So practicing in the way that that you are playing to your strengths as an individual. I think if you do that boldly, if you do that confidently, you're going to have other people say, okay, I am interested in that. I mean, do, am I coming across and saying that I know everything or that I that, or that I don't make any mistakes? So heck no, I make mistakes all the time. And there's a lot of things that I still want to learn and that I know that I want to get my patients even better more quickly than, than what I currently am. With that being said, if you still practice boldly, I feel like you're going to instill that confidence in another person. Your, your colleagues will help um, push you and ask you questions why. And any teacher knows that whenever you get asked five different ways of why doing that, you might have to have five different answers. That helps improve your whole professional formation. It'll help your practice. And it'll help you become the therapist that you want to be. So going boldly with movement. That is something that was very instilled in me with the Gray Institute. And Jen, I know that you've also gone through the fellowship with the Gray Institute as well. What is your take on, on taking a patient through an evaluation that is authentic to their movement pattern or authentic to their function? I feel like it's necessary. Like We have to be able to look at what somebody does in their function and be able, like we were talking about earlier, be able to relate that back to them. Oh, that feels nor that feels like when I have the pain. That looks like my golf swing. That looks like my forehand. Um, I feel a professional responsibility inside my eval if I can to get to that point with somebody and actually look at them in their functional movement of what what they're struggling with. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm having them move as quickly as they need to. It doesn't mean that I'm putting weights and resistances on them because I don't know if they can even control it in the eval. But I'm certainly starting to break it down and look at what are the components that are necessary that you've told me from your subjective might be difficult for you. Okay, if it hurts whenever you turn to the right, then I should probably look. If you're right-handed and you're playing tennis, I should probably look into your forehand and what that what that motion is going to look like. Is that the question? Did I answer your question correctly? <laughs> or what you're yeah. looking for? Yeah, I know. I mean, it wasn't necessarily the leading part. I think there's for me is that you're challenging appropriately for, for the demands of, of their activity. I know that um, if you want to use a more structured sequence of, of words for that, 
there's there's an idea of where you take a person through a motion that is selected by you as a therapist or that's selected by the patient and going through an objective evaluation. I think there's a time and place for both. And so, um, and where some of our discussion has gone with local and, and global, a lot of the local things we, that we do for an objective standpoint is truly looking at what we, what the therapists want to see out of their motion. But there is something to be said that we'll gather information when we have it be a patient specified distance or degree in which that patient moves that will tell us maybe how they move into in their natural environment and using both ideas, self-selected and PT-selected, that gives us two excellent data points in which we can build an effective assessment and plan of care. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think inside an evaluation for me, I'm doing more self-selected than anything, um, unless I want to change what I see. If I, you know, if I have somebody that I know is going to have to take a huge step out to the right and they're not showing me that huge step out to the right, then I might say, okay, let's get it going a little bit more, keep going with it, give them more repetition, have them do it a little bit more and see if they open up and if they can control that motion or if it's painful um, or not. But I definitely start self-selected and just see what they're comfortable with because the comfort factor is not – it could be physical. I have physical pain with it, but I I may just not be comfortable with these, like, eight people around me because I'm in this busy clinic and I'm kind of nervous because I just met you and there's a – there's a comfort to repetition and actually demonstrating what you want with the patient. So I just kind of let them go and let them, let them flow with it and then build on that as I, as I want to. Yeah. I want to make a comment on that as well is, you know, oftentimes we'll joke that we've got a patient who's quote unquote a motor moron or they can't sequence anything no matter how well we demonstrate it or verbally cue them to do it. Right. Even if, even if we are allowing them to go self-selected, range of motion. Um, just the other day I, I had a patient with, uh, I was asking him to do an, an anterior lunge and a lateral lunge, which are normal common motions that we do every single day. If you walk and if you function in any capacity, you're going to do those things every single day. This guy is also a tennis player and he could not get the sequence of an anterior and a lateral lunge figured out even four to five sessions in. So what did I do? I handed him a tennis racket. He put the tennis racket in his hand, and all of a sudden, the anterior and lateral lunge became natural to him because he was able to sequence it like he did in tennis, even though we kept telling him it was like when you step to the side to hit a forehand or you step to the side to hit a backhand when your footwork isn't good. Once I put the racket in his hand, all of a sudden, he was like, I get it. Um, It's natural. It became more natural, right? So even though I thought he was a motor moron, he wasn't. It was just I needed to get it more natural to him than what I had perceived originally. Yeah, and it's amazing to me how often I'll see a therapist go through and maybe it's because they're so used to taking objective measures where you can't reach a full tandem stance. So you just say they failed that test and go to the next self-selected can give you tons of information. Maybe you try to be creative like Dan was and you're intelligent with it and the patient still can't figure it out. That doesn't mean you can't obtain tons of relevant information of how they choose to move. Like Jen said, a lot of my eval is very much self-selected by the patient because I want to know what they do within where they're comfortable. I don't care what they can move like in a place they can't even get to. That's not going to give me much yet. Eventually, I want to be able to put them in a spot and see how they function there. But first, I want to know where they are going to be able to work within their own comfort level and and confines there. My question, though, to follow up on that is the question I get every time I make this comment is, 
Now, how do I document self-selected? Yeah. Are, are you sure we want to go to that beast? That's the first thing I get asked every single time because they people have a hard time documenting self-selected, apparently. For me, self-selected would fit into something called mid-range emotion. It's kind of where, I mean, unless unless somebody is barely moving and you do have those patients that just move to initial, but I'll usually document within initial range of motion, mid-range of motion, or in-range of motion. It's very few times that I'll see somebody just barely do something or go all the way with something and I have to pull them back. It's usually somewhere in the middle. Well, and I that's where I say you can push yourself creatively in terms of what exercise you're having them do. Like if it's for a lunge or squat, I think it's totally fine to approximate how much knee flexion they may have. Maybe their yeah. self-selected distance with doing an right foot anterior lunge is that their knee bends to about 45 degrees. I think that's a fine way to approximate if you document it that way. Or if you really wanted to, you could try to freeze frame them in, in real time and have them pause at that distance and then truly measure that weight-bearing knee flexion angle. And then that could be a potential, um, a very objective, clear-cut goal that, that you'll write down in your assessment. Um, for for their success. I mean, so I think if you're creative enough, self-selected, it doesn't have to be necessarily using the tools that we we're taught in PT school, the GONI and the manual muscle test, but you can still use them in maybe a little bit more unorthodox manners, ways that you weren't taught to still get an idea about how they're functioning as a baseline so you can create a goal for that. The other thing I would right. say is <clears throat> sometimes uh, I'll document what limited them. So was it pain? Was it fear? Was it apprehension? Um, and then that indicates that that was their self-selected movement, right? Like I would almost argue that the majority of the things that I do and whatever I document is the self-selected movement of them. If I say, hey, I want you to put your right foot forward and do a squat, if I don't give them any cueing, I'm going to see what they do first. And I'll make note, oh, without verbal cueing, here's what I saw right? They did 40 degrees of knee flexion without verbal cueing, or they did 120 degrees of knee, of knee flexion without verbal cueing, and that's going to destroy their patella femoral joint. So part of me would almost argue that whatever I document is their self-selected movement, unless I put something else, right? Like unless I put that it was at end range, or it was at therapist verbal cueing to sit their weight over their heel, um, or something like that. I'd almost say that almost everything then is self-selected. No, I like it. Thanks, guys. That's good feedback. And I, again, I just want to reemphasize: there really is no wrong way. Like Andrew said, you can use a goniometer. You can get creative. You can, you know, everything is self-selected. Maybe you're doing a standardized test that has an actual valid measure, and then you just describe whatever it is in whatever way you need to. You know movement. You know how to describe it. If you can have an individual replicate it, you're going to be fine. And then it also acts as an improvement or a measure you can use for insurance, justification, etc. So I think that's really good. Well, we've talked a lot about good objective components. I think we can all come to a pretty good consensus that we're really trying to look and use this information to drive where are we starting and really make sure we're understanding where are we starting isn't just they have a weak external rotator. Where are we starting is going to be what, what do we want to truly do at, at the appropriate level for that first session, first treatment, and go from there. So, Dan, Jen, Andrew, any last thoughts or comments you guys have on the objective section of the soap? Well, that was a great pop. 
I try. That was a pop. That was a good one. I heard that from here. (laughs) I would say that all the way in good here. I would say for our for our listeners is to truly challenge themselves to modify and differentiate their objective exam and tailor it to that individual. Um, I know we, you know, everybody heard it in PT school, but actually take the time to, to evaluate that person moving, assuming that there aren't any contraindications to that um, and pair it with the traditional things that they've been doing and gradually see what happens over time. Um, I, I don't expect people and our listeners to, to do a complete 180, although some people might say that's what they need at this point is do a complete 180. But I would say to our listeners is to take some components of what you heard us discuss here today and, and start integrating one or two things into their eval, thinking about why do they start locally and then going to globally? Why don't they do anything globally? Why do they go global to local? Um, th- that would be my biggest challenge for them. But I think Yeah, have, and you can... And you can take the you can take the parts that we were talking about in subjective, active listening, take that and actually use that to help you in objective because I, I can remember times that I would be like, okay, I just don't feel like I have time to really look back over subjective and filter out what I do and what I don't need to do in objective based off what they just said because I was just trying to get through the, the subjective. You can actually go back and look at your subjective and say, okay, so from what we talked about, these are the things that I'm hearing. These are the things that you told me that gives you time to actually hear yourself say it. And then you can say, okay, in my own mind, based off of that, I should, I want to look at these things that I maybe didn't plan for before I started this evaluation. It actually builds in a little bit of time without you having to leave, go outside the room or anything like that. Yeah, I love what you guys just said. And I'll just kind of like Dan, I'm going to say, just be bold, be confident in what you do know. And at the same rate, challenge your thinking a little bit. Is Are the objective measurements that you're taking, that you're planning to take, does that really capture that person's limitation? Or is there something else that you can design, that you can figure out to where that really shows where the patient is successful versus not successful? The more concrete you make that that your goal, the more you're going to get the patient to buy in, the easier it'll be for you to uh, make sure that you get the PT visits covered by insurance. It will be an easier, um, it'll be easier road after that point if you've done your objective section really well. Excellent. I like it all. And thanks again to everyone for being here. As always, if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, please reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. And everyone have a great day.